We are going through the whole Bible on a two-year program, and we're in the book of Psalms, Psalm 69. Um, is where we are right now. And I'm going to do a few Psalms. We're going to finish up book two in the middle of today's lesson, and then, we'll, and then at that point we'll kind of step back for an overview of the book. So, uh, Psalm 69 is a cry of distress and a prayer for punishment of David's enemies. It is it, it full of very intense sorrow. It's just... Um, uh, it's pretty amazing uh, just how deep were the feelings that David expressed in this psalm. Um, how, what figure of speech does he use in verse 1 to uh, express how he feels? So he's a savior. Save me, but then I'm looking for a um, kind of a comparison. Yeah. Yeah, waters. I mean, he wasn't literally, obviously, in, in water here, but he's picturing it like he's about to drown. And of course, we use that same expression a lot ourselves. Um, then in, in verse 2, he compares it to what? Yeah. Sunk in deep mire. There's no foothold. He's just... Um, and uh, and verse 3, it's so bad. What does he say? Yeah, I saw his parts from crying out to God. Ah. Now, finally in verse 4, we understand some of what's going on in his life and what's happening here. Yeah. Yeah, how many are, are how many people hate him? Well, we have to count the hairs on this head. <laughs> yeah. Well, does anyone know how many hairs the, the average person has on their head? Fewer than I had previously. Yeah, I actually looked this up, so I know the answer. <laughs> but, um, the average person has a hundred thousand. If you're naturally blonde, you got a hundred and forty thousand. So I'm naturally blonde, so. <laughs> I want to recap. Now we understand, of course, is that in the Bible, especially in the Psalms, you you will find. Uh, a figure of speech of exaggeration. Um, we, we saw one time when David uh, wrote a psalm about Saul and Jonathan. He said they were swifter than um, what did he say? Than eagles or and and faster than a gazelle. I mean, there's no physical way possible that Saul and Jonathan could have been as fast as what he said in in that psalm. He's simply using exaggeration like we do. But it's possible in verse 4 that there really were 100,000 people that hated him. Uh, does anyone know a time in David's life when that might have actually been true? He was chased out of his kingdom. Yeah, when, when Absalom had the rebellion, most of the nation went with Absalom. And... They Absalom raised an army to go, and the, the goal of the army was to kill David. And and I I I think it's very very likely there were over a hundred thousand people in that army. So um, this might not be an exaggeration. <laughs> and none of us 
have ever been in a situation to have that many people hating us. I mean, if you think about, oh, through your whole life the number of people that ha- have really hated you, uh, it's not going to come anywhere near this. And, and you can see why David feels so bad. Um, he, um, but look in verse 5. I think this is, this is very valuable. What does he mention to God in verse 5? His own sins. Um, so he understands that he's not... I mean, it's not like he's innocent done nothing. But watch what he's going to say in a little while. Um, He talks about his sins not because that explains why these people hate him. In verse 6, why is he talking about his sins? He doesn't want anybody to to go aside because of what he's done. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? If we could just get that through our own minds to, to, to understand that when Satan is tempting us to do something, this is not just a private thing, just, you know, me, myself, and I. It, it has consequences that, that are far-reaching. And, and the one that we love can be hurt by this. God is the one that we love. And we just don't want anything we do to, to, to cause harm to the one we love. And, and, that's, and that's what David's attitude is here. But in verse 7 we find out why these people are are hating Him so much and what is the reason? Because of this. Because of what He's done in the past. Good or bad? Bad. Verse 7 Verse 7 says, Because for your sake I have borne reproach, dishonor has covered my face. In other words... Because he's been serving God, people don't like him. And he says in verse 8, I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. That is some. Um, that has an interesting fulfillment in the New Testament. Anyone have any idea? It's not quoted, but I think it is fulfilled. Jesus. Yeah, Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him. You remember that? when they wanted him to go to the feast. I think it was in John 7. Um, David here is a type of Christ. And it's important that the reason David is suffering is the same reason that Jesus suffered. You notice in verse 9, "...for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who wrote you have fallen on me." David is hated because he is a godly man. He is zealous for... What is God's house? The temple. Yeah, it's the temple he's talking about. Where is this quoted in the New Testament? Jesus cleansed the temple. Yeah, in John chapter 2 when Jesus cleansed the temple. So, this is what's so interesting here. David has sinned and he hopes that's not going to cause anyone to be ashamed of God. But that's not why these people who are more than the hairs of His head are hating Him. They hate Him because He's a godly person. And when you think about it, that's pretty sad. 
that someone is hated because they're good, although it's not, it shouldn't be any surprise to us. Because that's exactly what happened to Jesus. They hated him because he was a godly person. So he continues like this down to verse 26. They have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten, and they tell the pain of those whom you have wounded. Um, and when we think about that, we again we think about Jesus and the fact that when when Jesus was on the cross, the, those Jews were ridiculing him like, "Hey, God doesn't like you," and they just wanted to add to the to his pain. But um, of course, they didn't understand why God was doing this. He was doing it for their sake. Now. Yeah. Back to this twenty-six. Mm-hmm. Can we put us in this verse, or are they talking about someone else? But the they. Well, they they are the people that are more than David's heads. I mean, the hairs on his head. They are the people that hated him without a cause. Um, and I hope we're not the ones that are persecuting someone that God has smitten. <laughs> um, So I mentioned that the several several verses in this psalm are quoted in the New Testament. I mentioned verse nine, quoted in John two seventeen. Verse twenty one is not quoted, but it is fulfilled. They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. When was that fulfilled? On the cross. Yeah, on the cross. They gave. They were just mocking Jesus. Here, have have some vinegar. Um, Though in fact, the vinegar they had was something that they actually drank. It was a sour wine that the soldiers enjoyed drinking, but it, I don't know that it do very well when you're thirsty. Um, but um, it's not quoted. And notice that Psalm 69 is not a, a psalm directly of prophecy of Jesus. It's a psalm about David. David wrote it about himself. And it, the whole thing does not apply perfectly to Jesus because David talks about his own sins. But David was a type of Christ and the suffering he was facing with so many people persecuting him because he was a godly man was a foreshadowing of the ultimate godly man and how he would be treated. Um, In verses 22 and 23, these are quoted in the New Testament. They're quoted in Romans 11 verses 9 and 10. May their table before them become a snare, and when they are in peace, may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so they cannot see and make their loins shake continually. David is, is asking God to punish these people who, who have treated him in, in such a bad way because he's righteous. Now that's a key point. D- David is asking God to, to bring justice upon these people. And Paul quotes this in Romans 11 as being fulfilled in the Jewish people. They, they were the ones who, who were suffering this because they had rejected Christ. And then in verse 25, the, um, Peter quotes this in, in Acts 1 verse 20, May there can't be desolate, may none dwell in their tents. Now who was Peter talking about? Judas, Judas Iscariot, yes. And, and he quoted this as um, support from the Scriptures that they should replace Judas's office. And and it makes a lot of sense because if they had not replaced Judas' office, it would be kind of like 
when a, you have a, a football quarterback that retires and they'll retire his number, nobody else ever gets that number again. What are they saying about the quarterback? He's special and one of a kind. And if they left Judas's office unfilled, they're basically saying, wow, nobody can replace that guy. Well, that's the last thing you want with someone who has behaved so abominably. Replace him as quick as possible. Let's let everyone forget him. And that's what David was asking for in, in verse 25 here. So, alright, that's Psalm 69. Any questions or thoughts on that? Alright, the next one is quite a bit shorter. Um, a little brief prayer for help against enemies. And it's interesting, the form of this uh, psalm, uh, it forms a chiasm. Um, we, we've talked about chiasms before. Uh, with, with a chiasm, that you can put a mirror, if you put a mirror right in the middle, the, the first half is reflected in the second half, but in reverse order. So you have you kind of have successive bracketing. The outermost, uh, the f- verse one, O God, hasten to deliver me, O Lord, hasten to my help, matches the last verse. But I am afflicted and needy, hasten to me, O my God, you are my help and my deliverer, O Lord, do not delay. Then we come to the inner two points, which contrast with each other. Um, in verse two, let those be ashamed and humiliated who seek my life. Verse four. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. So there's two, two different seekings and two different consequences for these people. Um, just a little brief psalm, but interestingly arranged. All right, now, Psalm 71. Um, we don't know who prayed this psalm. It doesn't have a title. But I have a question. How old is the guy praying it? He's old. A lot older than 73. A lot older than 73, okay. <laughs> um, and how do we know he's old? Because it says so. Uh, Tracy? It says so in the heading. <laughs> oh, and, but th- that heading was added by the translators. That's not, that's not original. Uh, um, the, Itali- the italic parts, you, you don't get credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, verse 18, even when I'm old and gray. Yeah, okay, old and gray, yeah. He could be 73, John. <laughs> yeah, it does that again. Um, verse 9, do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. Now, um, what do old people kind of have a reputation for doing a lot? Reminiscing. Ah, yeah, reminiscing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when I get old, I'll probably reminisce too. <laughs> um, the way this author does reminiscing is interesting. Um, he quotes from other psalms. Uh, now, I, I've just done part of the chapter. Right? This is all, all we get for, for this chart, but it gives you an idea. The rest of the psalm does similar. But the first three verses are almost identical to Psalm 31, 1 through 3. Um, and you, O Lord, I have taken refuge, let me never be ashamed. He says, O Lord, I have taken refuge, let me never be ashamed, your righteousness deliver me. And he, and he you know, here incline your ear to save me, and, and, and your righteousness uh, incline your ear to me, rescue me. It's only a very slight rewording of, 
of Psalm 31. Then we jump down to verse 6. By you I have been sustained from my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. Um, and then Psalm 22, verse 9, Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when I call my mother's breasts. And, and it keeps going. Verse 8 matches Psalm 35, 28. Verse 10 matches Psalm 31, 13. And we could, keep, we could go beyond this. It, it, I just did the first 10 verses because I filled up the page. But um, it, You see what he's doing. He's, he's bringing back these old other psalms and maybe he wrote them. Maybe, the, the, maybe the David is the one that wrote Psalm 71 and maybe he wrote... I mean, I, I know he wrote uh, Psalm 31 uh, and 22. Um, so he may be quoting his own earlier writings or you know, kind of bringing back a reminder of it. Um, sometimes people will do a song that they'll call a tribute song. You know, it'll, it'll kind of um, grab pieces of, of other songs. So you could call this David's tribute psalm, <laughs> bringing up these pieces. And he's just bringing up reminders of, of how he's constantly been asking God for help throughout his life, and God has answered him. And now at the end, he, he, he still has the same attitude. And this is, this is very valuable. I mean, Sometimes, it doesn't happen too often, but sometimes you see someone that it seems like they've served God all their lives and all their life, and then when they get old, they just turn away and you just wonder, what a time. I mean, this is crazy. But that's not the attitude of the psalmist here. In fact, what he's saying is, Lord, now that I'm old, don't leave me. <laughs> he's, he's lived his whole life depending on God, and, and he's asking God to rescue him. You know what? Yeah, should be just the opposite. What? Right. You'd certainly think that, and the psalmist here certainly is serving God at least as much as he ever did in the past. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I I don't understand it, and it doesn't. It really doesn't happen very often. I mean, generally, if you've seen someone behave really faithfully for years, you just have absolute confidence they're going to stay faithful. And this this psalmist did, and we're thankful for that. So, um, and I like what he says in verse eighteen. Even when I am old and gray, O God, do not forsake me, until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who are to come. Isn't that great? He's thinking of the next generation. Along, he wants them to learn about God, just like he knows God. Wonderful way to spend this old age. All right, Psalm seventy-two. Who wrote this psalm? Yeah, a psalm of Solomon. It's one of only two in the Book of Psalms that have his name in the heading. And what's this about? The king. The king. Yeah. Is this a good king or a bad king? He's a righteous king. A righteous king. Um, it um, this you know if we had a king like this we wouldn't need elections <laughs> this is just wonderful um, look in verse 2 what's the, what's the king supposed to do here with righteousness, righteousness. judge with righteousness um I mean, that would be great if we had confidence that all of our judges judged, judged people with righteousness. <clears throat> um, verse 7, 
What's going to happen if we have this righteous king? The righteous will flourish. An abundance of peace till the moon is no more. That's a long time. Um, yeah, um, Paul in, in the book of Romans talked about the purpose of government. It's to reward the righteous and punish wicked. And if you have a righteous king, then the righteous will flourish. Um, and in verse 12, what else does the righteous king do? Yeah, deliver the needy when he cries for help, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper. How come he doesn't deliver the rich? They don't need him. <laughs> they don't need him, that's right. <laughs> it's the people without any power that need the king. That's why we have government. Um, the rich do fine whether they have government or not. And oftentimes they co opt the government for their own purposes. But the poor people, they suffer a lot when you don't have government because the rich then take advantage of them. But the righteous king delivers them from that. A beautiful picture. Now, um, who's it talking about? <laughs> yeah, this is an ideal. This is an ideal. I'm sure Solomon was hoping it'd be about him, certainly. But it's an ideal, and even he, with all of his wisdom, didn't reach this level. But we get a hint as to what it's about. Because verses 10 and 11 are actually referred to in the New Testament. Let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. And let all the kings bow down before Him. All nations serve Him. You don't have any idea where that might be referred to. Not directly quoted, but referred to. It's in Luke Revelation. Revelation 21, verses 24 and 26. Now, those of you who were in the Revelation class a while back will remember that the book of Revelation never quotes the Old Testament directly. It never says, you know, as so-and-so said. Uh, you have to know that it's quoting. Um, however, the book of Revelation probably quotes the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book. And this, it's quoting these verses in the, at the very end of the book. When you have you know the thousand year reign and, and, and you know the reign of, the time of peace and, and all of this, and that's finally when you had the fulfillment of the whole psalm, the righteous king um, has finally come in and will reign. Now, um, verse twenty of this psalm is not actually part of the psalm. What what's what's verse twenty about? Yeah, it's telling us we just finished a book. How many books do we have in the book of Psalms? Five books. We've got five books here. Um, so here we have, we've covered book one, book two, and now we're ready to start book three. And we suggested a purpose for each of these books. Now this is a very general. I mean, because... I mean, this book of Psalms is a song book, and, and I mean, you, you might ask, like, it would, you know, what's the, what's the theme of our song book? Well, <laughs> it'd be a little bit hard to, to name one theme. But there does seem to be a general thread running through the Psalms that has to do with the King of Israel. 
And the first 41 psalms, many of those are written by David. This is the earliest of the books. And of course, he was the king of Israel. And he was God's agent. And Psalm 2 talks a lot about you know, the, the righteous king as the agent of God. Psalm 2 being quoted a lot in the New Testament referring to Jesus. And, and the second book seems to continue the same theme. And, and it has quite a few psalms by David. But now, and we'll have more by David. I mean, we're not done with him. But um, you, you probably notice when you turn the page to Psalm 73 that suddenly David's not the one writing anymore. We've got this, this new guy. Um, who's the one that wrote Psalm 73? Asaph. Asaph. Yeah, we'll talk about him in just a minute. <clears throat> but the books apparently were put together at different times. Um, the, fir- the first one being the earliest and the last one being the last one to be put together. They, kind of, they were adding to the book of Psalms and that's um, as they went along. And so in book 3, this apparently was done after, the, the, uh, after they were carried into Babylonian captivity. And one of the major themes in book 3 is, does the end of the monarchy mean the end of God's covenant with the nation? And, and you just get a lot of very sad psalms. I mean, just this is just terrible. What's happened to us, Lord? And why? And, and, and what's going to happen? And, and, and on and on. We'll look at some of these um, th- this morning. And then later on, we'll look at the next, the next one. Yeah. During you know these songs that are so sad, they be written during the time of Solomon, or during the time of the judges. I don't. I'm not aware of any of psalms that were written in the time of the judges. There is one in here written by Moses, Uh, but other than that, I think David was the earliest of the writers. Um, yeah, they do talk. Sometimes they talk about the, the time of the judges, but they weren't. I don't think they were written back then. Um, now, um, this turns red. Does it mean that it's running out of battery? No. No. One of the buttons isn't working. I think there's a button on the side push to switch modes. Oh, oh, it's the lock button. Works, okay. <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit about Asaph. I don't have a slide for him. But who was Asaph? Yeah, Tracy? If I can say it right, he was from the Levite tribe. He was part of... Um... Korah's clan, but he wasn't not Korah's. Kohath? Yeah, okay. When when did he live? When did he live? Anyone know? Uh, it's the time of David. David appointed him that you can I'm not going to turn over here, but in First Chronicles sixteen verses four through seven, David he was one of the the singers who was appointed when David brought the ark into Jerusalem. And then in chapter twenty five, verse one uh, David gave him kind of the official response, but he was in charge of the singers. And so he goes way back. Asaph does. Now, there's no way that Asaph wrote, Asaph himself wrote all the Psalms that have his name here. For example, Psalm 74. This is in the time of the Babylonian captivity. I mean, 
He had been dead for hundreds of years by then. Um, but he had a family, and probably, I mean, there's, there's two possibilities of what it means that it's of Asaph. Either it's from his family, like we had the Korahites before this, and, and they were all, at all different times. Or a song of Asaph may, may have been understood back then as being a particular kind of psalm, or maybe a psalm dedicated to these temple singers for them to use in the temple. Um, but Asaph himself, probably he was just as happy that he was dead by the time some of these psalms were written because it was not a good time to be alive. <laughs> it was pretty sad. Um, so I want to just briefly review our history here um, because... Here's where David was, around 1000 B.C. And then we had Solomon, we had one by Solomon around 950 B.C. And then after him, they, they split into the northern and the southern kingdoms. And I, I'm sure Psalms are written at various times during this period here. Uh, but it seems like the Psalms kind of cluster at certain periods of time. Um, I think some of them may have been written right around the time of Hezekiah. Um, with the Assyrians coming in. Um, they talk about the devastation of the land, but they're still in the land. And then we have some written down here with the Babylonian captivity. And we'll see one of those in just, in just a moment here. Um, and so the, the, the book three must have been put together at least as late as the Babylonian captivity. Um, I, don't, I haven't gone all the way through it to say definitely that it couldn't have been done later, but... Um, we certainly are going to have a number of psalms where the people are just in despair because they've been taken captive and Jerusalem has been been burned. All right, so seventy three. Now, yeah. was it this about the time? I know they were. Was it this somewhere near the time of uh, when they was coming out of Babylon and captivity and they were going to be rebuilding the temple? Uh, well. There may be some psalms in book three like that. I haven't come across them yet. We'll have to. We'll watch next week. I think we're going to finish this book. It's a pretty small book, the book three. Uh, but I haven't found any yet that would put it past the Babylonian captivity. Later on in Psalms, with books four and five, we do get we do get the return, um, and the the book finally finishes up on a. On a triumphant note, it goes through the depths, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. But the book finally finishes by saying, "God's the king." That's the answer to the problem. You know, we don't have a king, but God is the king. But they haven't got to that point in book three. And one of the one of the keys to understanding what the books are about is to look at the transition psalms, the beginning and the end of each book. And with book one, Psalm one is is a psalm about the righteous uh, versus the wicked. You know, the righteous is like a you know tree planted by the waters and so on. Um, and we ended book two with Solomon's psalm about the righteous king. Again, and I, I think that's kind of the theme of the entire book of Psalms. And now we're starting book three with the wicked have it good, and the and the righteous are not doing so hot. And that really that kind of summarizes the whole of book three, and especially as the righteous find themselves 
in captivity in Babylon and the wicked are their captors who are making fun of them. Um, Alright, so let's look... Um, this is a very interesting psalm. The, the, this, the writer had some real problems. Um, Surely God is good to Israel those who are pure in heart. Now that's, that's a good start. But, in verses 12-14, what does he see about the wicked here? Oh, they, they're living it up. And what about himself? He's not doing so hot, is he? Yeah. In fact, in, in verse 13, what's he think about serving God? It doesn't pay. Yeah. I've been stricken all day long and chasing every morning. But, verse 15, what's he say? If he'd actually said that, it would have been bad. Yeah, if he'd actually said that, he would have betrayed the generation of your children. It would have been. That would be a terrible thing to say out loud to anybody that you know, is trying to serve God. Um, the problem he has, he's looking at himself. And you know, he's saying, poor me. And watch how he solves the problem. In verse 16, he tried to understand it, but he couldn't. It was just troublesome in his sight. Until when? Came into the sanctuary, the temple here. And then everything popped into perspective. He realized that he's not looking at a long enough time span. <coughs> These wicked are doing okay for now, but it's not going to be like that forever. <coughs> so then he looks back in verse 21, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced with him, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. He recognizes that was really a bad way to think. It was really thinking like animals. Animals only think about what's what's here and now. But in verse twenty five he says, Whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you I desire I desire nothing on earth. We have a song that takes that phrase. Um, so he he gets rescued from this self centered um, feeling sorry for himself attitude. And he, he by looking by going to the temple and looking at the big picture, he gets rescued from that. <clears throat> now, 74, this one is after Jerusalem is destroyed. <clears throat> they're in Babylon, Babylonian captivity. And they're, they're, it's a prayer to God for rescue. <clears throat> um, what, what do they say has happened to them in verse 1? Yeah, have you rejected us forever? Why is your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Well, of course, when when we studied Kings and Chronicles, was forever. Yes. Um, so he asks the question in verse ten. What's the question? How long is this going to last? Now, well, actually, we know the answer. What is that? Seventy, <laughs> 70 years. Yeah, um, <clears throat> but he doesn't put that in here. Um, now this is this is uh, he comes up with a good answer in verse twelve. God is my king from old, who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth, <clears throat> and he quotes some things God's done in the past. So it's very important in times of of trouble like this to be reminded God is still the same God who who can do these great things. Um, and 
what was it in the book of Ezekiel? Which which prophet book was it when he says God's hand is not shortened that he cannot save? I think that's in the book of Ezekiel fifty nine, isn't it? But it, but it's your sins that have separated between you and God. I'm combining two things. <laughs> All right, yeah, uh, Isaiah. Yeah, God's hand is not shortened that he can't save. Um, these people are not in Babylonian captivity because God suddenly became weak. He's still the same God. And it's important that they remember that. Um, so then, based upon that, the psalmist prays in verse 18, Remember this, O Lord, that the enemy has reviled, and a foolish people has spurned your name. And verse 22, Arise, O God, and plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you all day long. He's concerned about God's honor. Um, and, and that's a good plea to make. Um, and the, the psalm is also interesting in that the name Lord, Jehovah, is found only one time in the whole psalm. Uh, what, it, what, is the, what word does the psalmist use instead of the word Lord? He uses God. Yeah, verse 1, um, a number of times he uses God. But in verse 18, remember this, O Lord, that the enemy has reviled and the foolish people has spurned your name. The name Jehovah is the covenant name of God. And so one time he reminds them, people are despising your covenant name. Now Psalm 75 sort of sounds like an answer to the problem in Psalm 74. <laughs> because Psalm 75 is about God will judge the wicked. And, and, it, it's, and it uses an interesting technique. It starts out, the psalmist says, we give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks, for your name is near, men declare your wondrous works. Then in verse 2, who speaks? God does, yes. God speaks in verses 2 through 5. And, and that's, that's a very interesting literary technique. Um, he says, I'm the one who judges with equity the earth and all who dwell in it. And, and he announces that he's, he'll take care of these things. Um, then in verse 6, where, verse 6 and 7, where does help come from? This is not God speaking anymore, this is psalmist again. Comes from God, that's right. Doesn't come from the east or the west or from the desert or anything else comes from God. Um, now I'll mention that verse 8 is referenced in the book of Revelation. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord and the wine foams it is well mixed and He pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. That's, that's a theme that you find in some of the later chapters of Revelation. Chapters 14 and 16 is found. I think uh, one of the reasons why in Revelation it doesn't quote Scripture is because it was well coded, and uh, if they could reference back to Scripture, they could start seeing what was actually the intent of the matter. Yeah. Now, yeah. Some people talk about the Revelation being in code to hide it from the Romans and like that. I think that's not true. Um, I think the Book of Revelation is written to explain the whole Bible. And it quotes from various passages in the Old Testament, just a verse or two, but 
it expects the reader to know the whole context. And so when, when he re- references one verse, you can go back and read the whole psalm and understand more about what the Revelation writer has in mind by making that reference. So it, you could say it's a code in that um, he's constantly referencing the Old Testament and and bringing out what the true meaning of those Old Testament passages was about. The real Yeah, that's good. That's good. All right. Um, too far. Seventy-six celebration of God saving Jerusalem from an attack. Now you see, we've had to go back in time because um, we already had Jerusalem destroyed. But now we go back to a time when they'd gotten attacked, and um, in in verse three, there he broke the flaming arrows, the shield, and the sword, and the weapons of war. Um, and verse 9, when God arose to judgment to save all the humble of the earth. <clears throat> so, this is a happy time. It was a close call, but God saved them. We don't know when this was. It might have been when the Assyrians were attacking Jerusalem. Uh, that was a, certainly a close call that time, but we don't know. Um, I think he used the word Salem in verse 2. Uh, yeah, Salem was the ancient name for Jerusalem, Melchizedek being the king of Salem. Um, but he's talking about this is a song about God, His people, and their times, and they were at, at this time they weren't referring to it as something. They were referring to this uh, the city of David or Jerusalem. Yeah, and of course the word Salem means peace, as the Hebrew writer Hebrews writer points out. Um, so, is that is that is that what you're thinking of? That he used the word Salem because uh, to remind them that this is the city of peace. It's God's peace. Yeah, that's good. All right. Um, Psalm 77. Comfort in time of trouble by remembering God's great deeds of old. Um, in um, and there's quite a contrast in this psalm. In verse 7, what, what's the psalmist thinking? Rejected forever. Are we rejected forever? Has His loving kindness ceased forever? Um, and in verse 10, then, then I said, it is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. Aha, this is a big problem, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it looks like he's not the same as he was before. So how does he solve the problem in verse 11? Yeah, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Shall I remember your wonders of old? I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. That's how he solves the problem. Um, uh, G. Campbell Morgan makes an observation on this psalm. He says, The message of the psalm is that to brood on sorrow is to be broken and disheartened while to see God is to sing on the darkest day. I think that's great. Morgan was sort of poetic himself. (laughs) Um, Psalm 78. God's faithfulness in spite of the people's unfaithfulness. At first glance, just look at the overall psalm. What's unusual about this psalm? (laughs) A long psalm. This is the second longest psalm in the whole book. What's the longest? 
119. Everyone knows that one, but not too many people know the second one. That's like coming in second in the Olympics. Nobody remembers. <laughs> it's a history song. Um, and I've got an outline that Mike Wilson prepared. I liked it. So we'll look at this. Um, Human forgetfulness and the importance of taking action, the first 11 verses. It's just really important that, like in verse 6, the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born. Um, And the psalm alternates back and forth. You have God's power on display, then you have the people testing God. And then God's power on display, people testing God. God's power on display, testing God. And then finally, God remembering and taking action at the very end. And, and it, it's a, the, the lesson it, it, from history, it, 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 we're trying to teach the next generation, don't test God, folks. You know, God has done all these great things. Be thankful for them, enjoy them, instead of you know, constantly grumbling and, and, and testing and, and doing all kinds of things contrary to God's will. Um, all right, we're back to another destruction of Jerusalem psalm in, in Psalm 79. Um, what's he say in verse 1 the nations have done? Lay Jerusalem in ruins. Yeah, so clearly we're back in Babylon again here. Um, in verse 5, we, we've had this question before How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Um, Verse 8, do not remember the iniquities of our forefathers against us. Let your compassion come quickly to meet us. Well, now, they're right. To, the psalmist here is right to, to recognize that sin is the cause of this problem. And the only solution is for God to forgive. And that's what his prayer is. And then in verse 10, why should the nations say, Where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight vengeance for the blood of your servants which has been shed. He's concerned about God's honor. When people say, where is their God? They're basically saying, how oh, their God's not worth much, is He? And that's a terrible uh, tragedy for people who believe in the true and the living God. And, and, and He's concerned for God's honor here. <clears throat> I think I've got time for one more here. Prayer for God to rescue um, His people. This, is, this interesting psalm has... It appears to have three stanzas. Um, because at, in verse 3, that's the end of the first stanza. Verse um, 7 is the end of the second stanza. And verse 19 is the end of the third stanza. And you notice how they all sound the same. O oh God, restore us and cause Your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. But there's a difference. Each of them refers to God in a different way. The first one refers to God as, O oh God. What's the second one? Oh God of hosts. What's that mean? God of heaven. Uh, what are hosts? Hosts are armies, yes. So God of hosts means God of armies. Um, and verse 19, what's the title? Lord oh Lord God of hosts. So they bring in the name Jehovah here as well. Um, and so He's Jehovah, the God of the armies. So it's an increasing... Uh, uh, Scale here as we as we look at the titles of God. Um, so, um, verse four we have the same similar thing. How long will you be angry with, pe- with 
with the prayer of your people. Verse 8, he reminds God, you removed a vine from Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. He's pictured, this is something that we find in the book of Isaiah as well and some of the other prophets, that Israel was a vine that was planted and he took them out of Egypt and planted it and he took care of it. And so then what's, what happened in verse 12? Yeah, why have you broken down its hedges? Um, can someone run down there and open that, unlock the door? Um, how's he going to do it from the outside? Oh, 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 I'm sorry. Okay, so we didn't have to send. Yeah. So, yeah, why, why aren't you taking care of your vine anymore is the question. And um, so in verse 14, turn again now, I beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine. Well, we've got to stop there. I appreciate everyone's help this morning. We'll take it up with Psalm 81 next time. Sorry, John, I didn't, I didn't figure out what man he was, had in mind there. I served him so purposely. <laughs>